Hello and welcome to the latest SCC English podcast. This is Julian Gurdam from the English Department of St Columbus College in Dublin, Ireland. Look at our site sccenglish.ie for more. This is the fourth in a series of podcasts revising the play Hamlet leading up to the Leaving Certificate. And this time I'll be looking at the first soliloquy of the play. One of the most distinctive and important dramatic techniques that Shakespeare deploys in Hamlet is the soliloquy. He uses it in other plays too, perhaps most powerfully in Macbeth, but nowhere else does it have such a prominent role. It is used most significantly by Hamlet and also once and very powerfully by Claudius. I'd like to recommend our soliloquy Wordle slideshow on the blog reposted below this talk at seceenglish.ie, which highlights the most commonly used words in each soliloquy and attaches performances of them by actors such as Kenneth Branagh, Patrick Stewart and David Tennant. Even, or especially, when you know the speeches well, there is no better way of refreshing your understanding of them by seeing and listening to great actors performing them. What actors need to do with these soliloquies is to give us the sense of a mind working. They are thoughts as they occur to Hamlet, a deeply thinking man. It is for this reason that this play highlights soliloquies so consistently. The very first words that Hamlet speaks are aside, to us rather than to the people around him. His embittered, a little more than kin and less than kind. He is still in mourning clothes, standing out in the celebrating court scene, marking Claudius's ascension to power. In the following lines, we hear more of his barely suppressed bitterness as he responds to his mother's attempts to jolly him along. He becomes particularly bitter when it seems that she is suggesting that his continuing grief is common, that it is common for people to die, and he retorts, I, madam, it is common suggesting that she knows all about how to behave in a common way. She is followed by Claudius, who at his most smarmy tries to argue him out of his black mood. "'Tis a fault to heaven, a fault against the dead, a fault to nature, to reason most absurd, whose common theme is death of fathers." He is prodding an open wound, and a few lines later, when he leaves with his new queen, He leaves behind a Hamlet who is seething, boiling over with a potent cocktail of frustration, outrage and anger. And so we come to the first soliloquy. Each of Hamlet's soliloquies has a different tone and indeed different targets. This one is before he gets the crucial news of his father's murder and learns who he was murdered by. Its target is not himself, like the second soliloquy, Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, is not even really his uncle slash stepfather. It's overwhelmingly dominated by his feelings about his mother. After the first ten lines, which express his attitude to life and the world generally, the rest of the speech is almost completely about Gertrude. Claudius gets just a couple of passing mentions. Obviously he can't stand him, but far deeper are his feelings about his mother. These come to full fruition in the extraordinary closet scene, Act 3, Scene 4, when he really lets her have this anger with both barrels. They also come out every now and then in between these two moments, 
especially in his bizarre treatment of Ophelia. But you should certainly consider the closet scene as the delayed culmination of this first soliloquy. The opening lines express Hamlet's yearning, in the words of the third soliloquy, not to be. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a dew. His flesh is too, too solid. This is the first of a series of repetitions which express his frustration. Oh God, God, fie on it, fie, but two months dead, why she, even she, and so on. In another version, the word is sullied, dirty, which also makes sense, although solid logically leads on to thaw and resolve or dissolve. Yet another version has sallied, meaning besieged or under attack. We're hearing from someone who doesn't wish to be in the world. Sentiments he also expresses to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in Act 2, Scene 2, when he calls the earth a sterile promontory. He wishes that God had not fixed his canon against self-slaughter. He has a fine sense of religious law, as we see when he decides not to kill Claudius when he is praying later on. The next time self-slaughter might be on the menu, it is impossible, since if he kills himself, he will not be able to avenge his father. The world is weary, stale, flat and unprofitable. It is an unweeded garden that grows to seed, things rank and possess, and gross possess it merely. Again, this chimes with many images of rankness, corruption and rottenness in the play, most famously with Marcellus's line, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And the ghost tells Hamlet in Act 1, Scene 5, that the whole ear of Denmark is by a forged process of my death rankly abused. Hamlet's syntax almost trips over itself in the next sentence. That it should come to this, but two months dead, nay, not so much, not two, so excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr. A few lines later he says it was within a month, and a little month. Though the more dispassionate Ophelia, in Act 3, Scene 2, says that it was in fact twice two months. So it seems that, even to himself, Hamlet is so wound up with fury that he is sarcastically exaggerating the shortness of time for effect. And there is more exaggeration or hyperbole. His father was Hyperion, the Greek god of the sun, whereas Claudius is a satyr, a lecherous half-man, half-goat. Now, there's no doubt that King Hamlet was morally better than his brother, who is, after all, a fratricidal murderer, but there's no particular evidence that he's especially lecherous. And stretching things to suggest that his father loved his mother so much that he might not beteem the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. He follows this comment with a despairing rhetorical question. Heaven and earth, must I remember? He can't help remembering. And when the ghost tells him the awful truth, he will never be able to forget that. He accuses his mother of a kind of emotional and sexual betrayal. She would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on, and yet within a month. It's important to say that there is no evidence that his mother cheated on the king before his death. Hamlet's sense of betrayal comes from his belief that she has cheated on his memory, 
and on the special nature of their relationship. Then comes his comment on, yet within a month, followed by the hopeless, let me not think on it, which is an impossibility. You can't deliberately not think about something. That just isn't the way the human mind works. And thinking is one thing that Hamlet, that student of philosophy, does almost obsessively. He has a vision of his mother following his father's coffin, like Niobe all tears, after exclaiming, Frailty, thy name is woman. The terrible implications of the poisoning of his mind against women are acted out later in his treatment of Ophelia. Niobe was a woman who really did mourn when her children died. And again his syntax gets chopped up in his agitation. Why she, even she, O oh God, a beast that wants discourse of reason, would have mourned longer, married with my uncle, my father's brother. Well, thanks very much for reminding us just what an uncle is. He's actually spelling out the horror to himself, my father's brother. The whole sentence is long and contorted with emotion. He says that Claudius is no more like my father than I to Hercules, the mythical Greek hero who had to complete twelve superhuman tasks. So already Hamlet sees himself as someone unsuited to great tasks. He accuses his mother of most unrighteous tears in her galled eyes when she married. And most bitterly of all, he exclaims, O oh, most wicked speed, to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. Again, be careful. This is not evidence that she was sleeping with Claudius while still married to King Hamlet. It is evidence that Hamlet sees her behaviour as emotionally rather than legally incestuous. No one other than Hamlet and the ghost, two very interested parties, regards this new marriage as incestuous. And Claudius doesn't mention it in his list of sins when attempting to pray when he's completely honest about everything else. The soliloquy ends with, It is not, nor it cannot come to good, but break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. He cannot say anything in public. What he really wants to say is how wounded he is by his mother's behaviour. This soliloquy is about her. Before long, Claudius will dominate his thoughts, but for the moment it is not Claudius who angers him most. Then Horatio, Marcellus and Barnardo enter, and he switches to cheerful welcomes, before Horatio's news changes his life. So that is the first soliloquy. Poised just before that life changes, the words of a man eaten up with bitterness, frustration and anger. When you're studying this play, it's important that you have a detailed knowledge of this and the subsequent soliloquies. They're hard evidence of what is inside the head of this most complex character. <laughs>